I'm Tavi Nasir, and this is Leadership Biz Cafe, a podcast that provides insights and tools to help leaders take on the challenges and opportunities found in leading today's workplaces. Leadership Biz Cafe is brought to you by Tanvir Nasir Leadership, our leadership firm that offers keynotes and corporate trainings in both virtual and in-person settings that will help you to improve the way you lead and guide your organization's growth and future successes. To find out how we can help you today with your leadership challenges and discover your untapped opportunities, visit our website at tevinasir.com. Now, I have to tell you, you're in for a real treat here. If you're a regular listener of my podcast, you'll remember that last year we celebrated our 10th year of the Leadership Biz Cafe podcast. And while I didn't make any plans to celebrate that milestone, we had some truly amazing guests who I was honored to have the chance to speak with one-on-one about leadership. And two of those guests from last year were Tom Peters and Jim Kuzes. As it turns out, Tom and Jim used to work together And for fun, I mentioned to them both how it'd be amazing to be able to speak to both of them on my podcast about leadership and the challenges we see through our own work that those in the leadership space have to address. Well, both Tom and Jim replied to me, I'd love to do that. Let me know when and where and I'll be there. (laughs) Talk about getting one of your wishes to come true. Looking back, I should have played the lottery on that day. And I have to say, when you get a chance to sit down and speak with such leadership luminaries as Tom Peters and Jim Cousins at the same time, all you have to do is sit back and let the magic happen. And boy, I can tell you, there's some real magic here. And it's such a thrill and an honor to not only get a front row seat, but to be a part of the fun. I also have one note here to make. Tom's language gets a bit salty one or two times as he gets very passionate about what he's talking about. I personally had no issue with it, but I wanted to make sure I advised you so you don't play this episode out loud at work or around young children where that kind of language is not appropriate. And with that, here's my conversation with Jim Cousins and Tom Peters about some of the issues leaders are having to address right now in order to help their organization achieve its long-term goals, while at the same time, attracting and retaining the people they'll need to make their vision a reality. So to start things off, let me just say what a thrill it is to not only get a chance to speak to both of you again, but to speak to both of you at the same time. This is actually the first roundtable I've ever done on my podcast, so it's exciting that I'm inaugurating this kind of a format with the two of you. And I'm just looking forward to the insights both of you are going to share on leadership, and I'm really hoping we'll touch on some timely issues that a lot of leaders and organizations are having to address and deal with today. Tanvir, just let me say thank you for uh, going through all the hoops in order to make this happen. I, I think, Tom, this is the first time we have actually been in some kind of interaction for decades. Yeah, I guess decades is the right answer. Yeah. Really? It's a pleasure to see you. You look great. And and I just am delighted to be on with you. <laughs> <laughs> I look, I'm sorry, I can't deal with you. You look great. <laughs> Are you talking to a couple of old white guys, Tanvir? <laughs> 
Well, as I said, I'm absolutely looking forward to this. This is such a treat and a joy and a pleasure. So I thought I'd start things off by discussing an issue that many leaders and organizations continue to struggle and address. And it's this ongoing discussion of do we offer some sort of a flexible work arrangement for our employees? As we're seeing now, there's been quite a few high profile examples and organizations that are now pushing the return to office. I love that the business world, how quickly they came up with an acronym for this, that everyone's talking about RTO as this new, (laughs) as a person who comes not from the business world, I just love how quickly vernacular in the business world and acronyms take hold. But it's interesting. I mean, it's not just the businesses, even cities, like I know New York City and the mayor of Montreal as well, have both been pushing, you know, we've got to get people back in those office towers, back in their cubicles and so forth. And I'm sure your experience mirrors mine in that the leaders I've been speaking through various different industries all seem to be in agreement that we're not going back to pre-pandemic times, that we're going to have people Monday to Friday, nine to five, that we are going to have to change how we view work and how we work. So I'm curious to know how you guys, when you're seeing this ongoing discussion, because it seems like there's really becoming a greater pushback against any type of notion of remote work or flexible work environments. Is this a power grab? Is this just people lacking imagination in terms of how they view leadership that for me to lead people, I have to have butts and seats so I can feel in control? Or is there really a genuine reason why we need to go back to that pre-pandemic. I mean, obviously, we do need to have people in offices at some times because when we want to collaborate and we have a meeting, we need to be, have people there. But outside of that, is there really a reason for us to think that we really have to go back to what the work environment was like pre-pandemic? All yours, Jim. <laughs> and Yeah, I've been listening to the same uh, high-profile leaders I think you're referring to uh, here in Silicon Valley. Uh, you know, we have Elon Musk, who uh, is demanding people go back to work and, you know, butts and seats for 40 hours a week or else. And uh, there are others that we've all heard about. And I think that they're representative of a certain group. But a- as you indicate, Tanvir, they're not all. I, I think, uh, for example, just give me, uh, give, give me an opportunity to give an example. I was on the phone with our publisher couple of people from our publisher, John Wiley and Sons, a multi-billion dollar company. And uh, they've told their folks, uh, it's your choice. You can come to the office if you want to. You can stay home if you want to. You know, we're going to measure performance and and results. And uh, right now, we're happy with the decisions we've made about work from home, work from anywhere. So I think some executives, in fact, I would suggest the majority are recognizing We're not going to go back to pre-pandemic days, and we're going to figure out some flexible work options. I my simple answer is I agree with you, Uh, but what I'd add is that it is confusing, and the sorts of things to me that are confusing. Years ago. I did some PBS thing and was looking at a really successful architectural firm, I think in Texas called, called whatever they were called. And they were built, they had just built a new headquarters and outside the restrooms, they had put chairs, you know, comfy chairs. 
And the logic was coming out of the restroom, they thought it'd be kind of great if people sat down and chatted with each other. And I'm a strong believer, and I think the research is there to support it, that unplanned, unexpected human-to-human interaction is responsible for an inordinate share of our creativity. And that's the one that's puzzling me. Uh, I mean, I think the answer is obviously hybrid, 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 which is not very exotic. But I don't, I don't know what I would do is, is the real answer. I'm not faced with the decision, uh, but I want to keep the, I, 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 you know, all, it always irritates the hell out of me when people say, you know, well, your work is not your family. Well, that's bullshit. It is your family. It's not your family in many, many ways. But the reality is you spend more of your waking hours as an adult with your workmates than even with your family. So there is there is a whole lot of intimacy in, involved in, in getting things done. And I, I you know, I, I'm 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 skeptical of one way fits all. I'm skeptical of two ways fits all. I think I'm skeptical of 32 ways fits all. It's a time of experimentation. And, uh, you know, I remember there was a guy by the name of something or other, Bing, who wrote a column every couple of weeks in Fortune magazine. And the, the one I remember, now this goes back 20 or, or 20, 25 years, is he said, innovation is dead with the three martini lunch going away. And, you know, ha, 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 but not 100%, ha, ha, ha. Completely, completely agree. And a couple of things, a couple of words that you use, confusing, and uh, we don't know. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. There was an article in the current issue of Fortune about Google, and Google's experimenting. Oh, they, so they just opened in May a new campus. It's the first uh, grounds-up building that they've built. It's a Bayview building right next to NASA's research uh, center in uh, that Menlo Park area. And uh, they they have gone hybrid. So three days at the office, two days, uh, your own flexibility, wherever you want to work. And uh, they're struggling. Uh, the first day they opened up, there was a, it took an hour to get off the campus because all these cars were coming on to the property. <laughs> So the people hadn't figured out what to do and how to schedule the work so that they wouldn't all arrive at the same time. Some are mad, some are, are happy. Uh, I think we're, Tommy used the word experiment. We're in a big experiment right now and we ought to look at it as such. Let's do some research and figure out what works best for people. And my hunch is hybrid is gonna be the answer. Jim, I wanna go back to Jim Kuzis. And I think, you know, the question is a good one, and we've probably done a, at least a half-assed job in answering it. But what Jim Cousas said, and where I've ended up, I think I was always there to some extent, is the only thing that really matters is do you give a shit about your employees and their future? Do you care for them? Uh, and, and if Google did this thing, you know, God bless them because it gave me data. 
Google did a thing that I've used in my last two books. Uh, and, the, and the thing was, what are the attributes of the top employees? What are the attributes of the most innovative teams? And I don't remember all the exact points, but there were eight attributes of the most successful employees. And the first seven were soft stuff. And it was soft stuff like no bullying, like respect diversity, like listen when the other person talks. And then they did the same thing with the most innovative team. And, you know, Google's one of those stupid places that has A teams and B teams. But on innovation, the B teams beat the hell out of the A teams for the same reasons. They had eight factors and seven, seven of the factors were the quote unquote soft stuff. So, you know, if, if we hire for the right reasons, if we hire for empathy, this stuff doesn't go away. But honest to God, you're 93 yards down a hundred yard field. Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm sounding like Jim Cousins, which is, it's horrifying to me, but I'm doing my best. I'm doing my best. Uh, you know, I, I think, I think it all, it doesn't all begin and end, but you know, to me, first attribute, every job hire for empathy. You know, we were, I quoted a guy, uh, again, in one of my books, he was the head of a biotech firm. And he said, we only hire nice people. And he said, some of the degrees required in biotech, you can't even pronounce the degree. It's so sophisticated. But guess what? Even with that degree, there are a lot of people who got it in the world, hire the nice ones. Well, Tom, you know, what you just said, I would completely agree with the data supports it. If you, if you are viewed as an empathetic listener by your peers and your, as a leader, by your peers and your direct reports, you are 40% more likely to have engaged employees. And so it comes down to, do I respect the other people? Do I demonstrate that I trust the other people? And if you, if you come from that place, people... You will you will trust that people make the right decision about whether to show up or not show up and figure out how we're going to work together. Yep. And I'm just reading something from uh, from uh, Joe Volkman, who uh, has written a new book called The Trifecta of Trust. And he did some interesting research where he looked at this issue of trust and he looked at the extent to which if a peer trusts a peer, what does that look like? Not managers trust direct reports or direct reports trust their manager, but peer trust a peer. And he found that it's it is a uh, it's more likely that people will, if they trust their peer, the peer will trust them. I mean, it makes perfect sense. But in a workplace where people trust each other. And the opposite is true. If they dis, if some someone distrusts a peer, the, that peer is more likely to distrust them. We're going to have the, the kind of workplace that results from either trust or distrust. And so I think it starts there. It starts with uh, do we trust each other? Yeah, I, I have my back. And I, I think if, when that happens, ninety percent of this discussion that we're having evaporates. Because it, 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 I mean, I don't, I still think there ought to be places where people can sit outside the restroom or, or, or uh, what have you. Um, the, the only thing, I wouldn't add anything 
I would just put an asterisk because, and I don't remember you, Jim, it was uh, something I never paid enough attention to. Uh, I argue that the number one asset in any organization, asset with a capital A, is the quality of first-line leadership. And there's, again, talking like you, there's hard-nosed research that says good first-line leadership is correlated with hard stuff like measurable quantity, innovative stuff, and so on. And, and uh, you know, I, I don't think my experience, and you've been in more companies this way than I have, Jim, but my experience is the average company takes the first-line supervisor's job seriously, but not one-tenth as seriously as they ought to. Uh, and so I've, I've become a, I've become a, just a frothing fanatic. And I'm glad you guys are bringing up this issue of trust and actually empathy, because just this morning I was giving a keynote on leading with empathy to a company in Germany, and I've been doing a couple this year. And it's amazing to see how much it just lights people up. Like people are hungry for it. As much as you're saying you're a frothing fanatic for people-centric leadership, Tom, it's also becoming more apparent that people are also starting to realize the importance and necessity of empathy towards how we lead because it affects how we communicate. And, you know, to build on your point, Jim, that you shared about the issue of trust, this is one of the things I find interesting. Whenever I see these organizations, it's always coming down from the CEO, right? It's the real top-down command and control style leadership where, okay, I'm going to pass a decree. Everyone's returned to the office on this date, but there's no rationale explaining for why we were so effective. You complimented us. You said, my goodness, productivity went through the roof. You're doing so well. Thank you for being so dedicated to the organization. Now return to office. And I was speaking to some CIO executives a few months ago, and I said to them, like, obviously, you guys were leading the charge because you had to expedite the digitization of your workplace so that people could actually work from anywhere. So isn't there a role here for you guys to play in if there is a need to return to the office? Like, for example, Tom, you brought up the idea of those spontaneous interactions. Shouldn't that be communicated so that we encourage trust and leadership? There's a reason why you want us to return off as opposed to just, well, it's our decree. It's just the way I like things to be done here. Yes. Well, decree decree with, with uh, uh, variables like this obviously doesn't get you very far. Uh, you know, I, there was, I can't remember the, yeah, I can't remember a damn thing at my age. I can't remember the title of the book, but, but what the, the title of the book was the most important decisions that any organization makes are the hiring decisions. And most people are not, most leaders are not competent hirers. And, and it's little stuff and big stuff, uh, Oh, Jim, you know the authors, and I do too, and I can't remember their names, but there's a wonderful book called Management Lessons from the Mayo Clinic. And the one thing which stuck in my mind is I'm the boss, and uh, I'm looking for candidates for a neurosurgical position, and Jim Kuzis comes in, and he has got a record that just makes me almost weep. And we have an interview for 45 minutes. What Jim doesn't know is that during the interview, I don't know whether I'm doing it with a pen on my arm or whatever, 
I am literally counting the number of times that Jim uses the word we versus the number of times that Jim uses the word I. And it is as simple as it sounds. If the eyes beat the we's, you know, good for you on your neurosurgical whatever. You know, and, and the thing about this is, incidentally, is uh, Mayo is at the top of every list that I see. And this whole thing for Mayo goes back to 1914. Uh, Dr. Mayo from the start said team medicine, team medicine, team medicine, et cetera. And God alone knows, I don't know about all over the world, but in the United States, team medicine ain't what we practice in the average hospital in, in, in America these days. You know, and, and Tom, team and collaboration go hand in hand with trust. If you don't have trust, you can't have an effective team. You can't have a team that collaborates, uh, that's innovative. I mean, it's trust rules. And, uh, you know, what, what, sadly, what we're finding right now, and this is Edelman Trust Barometer, indicates that we have, ex excuse me for using the word, but a pandemic of, tr of distrust. Trust, distrust, distrust is now the default position for the majority of people around the world. That is really sad, sad news. How are we gonna build a workplace again, if we have to go back to work, where people are collaborative, act as teams, when their default is distrust? Now that's the bad news, that's the bad news. The good news is that among all the institutions that Edelman looked at in 2021, reporting in 2022, uh, business or the workplace is the one place that's gone up in levels of, of trust of leaders compared to all other institutions, government, uh, NGOs even have declined, but business has increased. So in looking for solutions to this problem, people are turning to business and even demanding that they be more responsive. Uh, because they don't think the other institutions are going to. And the other bad news is uh, over about two-thirds of people, according to Edelman, uh, do not see a civil way in which we're going to resolve the problems of distrust right now. So how, how, do, how, do we, how do we deal with this problem? I think we deal with this problem when Tanvir talks to people in Germany about empathy and Tom works with people and repeats his extreme humanism message. And we, Barry Poser and I, my co-author, and I talk to our clients about how important trust is to building effective collaborative workplaces, whether it's on site in an office or whether it's virtual like we are right now. Yeah. I'm loving the fact that we keep coming back to this notion of collaboration, because I'm sure both of you have seen how one of the big arguments for why we can't sustain any kind of flexible work environment, whether it's remote workers or not, is because of this fear that we're going to see a decline in collaborative efforts amongst employees. But then you have the tension of people saying, yes, but I still am able to do my work. I still feel a connection to my colleagues. We do it in an, we're changing the way we collaborate and doing it in ways that maybe is not on the radar of the leader. So, but for those who are like worried about it, how do we ensure if we are thinking of a flexible work environment and kind of building on your point, Tom, 
where there, I, and I know I've read studies like you where they show that really that's where a lot of the inspiration creativity comes. It's from those spontaneous moments. It's not when we sit down in a boardroom with a big marker board and someone standing there saying, all right, let's get creative here, folks, right? A lot of times those insights really come because someone says something and they've put that last piece of the puzzle that you have in your head and suddenly it clicks. So what are the things we should be thinking of as we think about collaboration in a hybrid setting, whatever that may look like? I, I want to answer, I want to go indirect and maybe even in the wrong direction a teeny bit. Uh, arguably, in my experience, the number one cause of low productivity, low innovation, and so on is lousy cross-functional communication. And I have argued for a long time that there is only one solution to poor mm -hmm. cross-function uh, communication, and it has nothing to do with software. And it is one word with five letters, L-U-N-C-H, lunch. I literally, with my seven people or seven managers, are going to measure the number of lunches they have had with people in other functions. And, you know, the way I describe it is, you know, I've been fighting with the finance people forever and ever. I find a way to invite Jim to lunch. And even after the lunch is over, Jim will be a consummate finance guy and I'll be a consummate HR guy. But the thing that happens is somewhere in the middle of lunch, Jim and I discover we both have 14-year-old daughters who are going to the same school. And Jim will still be a professional son of a bitch, and I'll still be a professional son of a bitch, but our entire relationship has changed 179.8 degrees as a result of that. Now, how do we do that in this, you know, back to your point, which I was, was just wobbling around? I mean, the, the one thing I've learned, and I don't know whether this is relevant, uh, I was terrified when the pandemic began, and Jim is this way, and I may even be a little more this way, uh, I'm all about the emotion, sometimes loudly in my communication. And I didn't know whether I could keep that in a virtual world. And to my absolute positive delight, the answer is absolutely. Uh, when I finish giving an hour speech, I am always close to nausea because I'm so exhausted from what I've put into it. And my wife, Susan, says, hey, Tom, this is working for you. You're just as nauseous as you were when you went, <laughs> were in a room somewhere. And, and so there, there, there is good news that way. But I, what I can't figure out, and you two guys, probably you've had a lot more experience on this than me. Uh, how You're a boss and you have 11 people working for you what's your trick in the best sense of that word for having personal conversations with them in the post-pandemic world how do you, how do you right now 11 people jim and jane and mary and blah, 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 blah. Uh, how, how do you keep the personal i mean i've got some ideas but i i'm not paying attention the way you two guys are how do you how do you keep how do i keep a personal relationship with Jim? How do I find out that, you know, Jim's going through the pandemic and his mother is in an assisted living place and 87 things are on his mind. 
I really, in my opinion, and I think Jim has always been stronger on this than me, I really need to know that as the person in charge. So, so I was talking with Sean McLaughlin. He uh, was someone who, or sort of a major media company in the U.S., uh, newspapers and uh, TV and radio. And uh, Sean used to have pre-pandemic one global conference with everyone where he talked, got to talk to them and run into people in the hallways and an, and a couple of opportunities where he'd get together with people regionally. And that was it. During the, the pandemic, when everything went virtual, including the newsroom, they had to, uh, they had to figure out how they were going to, to meet with each other. And so they had Zoom meetings, just like we're having. And Sean was quite surprised that when he was on these Zoom meetings and he was seeing everyone on the screen, he was starting to notice something he never noticed before when he just had a couple of large meetings every year with all of his folks. And that was that some people were struggling, some people looked confused, some people mm -hmm. looked tired. Some people just didn't seem like they were really with it. Mm. And he had not noticed that before when he was in these large meetings. He hadn't seen that before. And so he started to call uh, up and schedule a one-on-one -on -one Zoom meeting with those individuals that he noticed were not doing well. And to his credit, he learned that previously, during the normal times, he wasn't really empathetically listening, noticing what was happening with people, but during the pandemic he was. And he said, I'll never go back to that other way of doing business. So in some respects, the pandemic has helped people to notice that we need this. And perhaps we're having this conversation, Tanvir, because we're starting to notice that something was missing. Even though we had these opportunities to run into people at work, we really weren't with them. Now, I, I think I'm a little bit more optimistic. Now, I think people understand how important that element is. I agree. And Tom, I can tell you from my experiences, one of the things, and it builds on what you just shared, Jim, I've noticed over the course of the pandemic, you know, there'll be certain people you know, if I send them an email about something, you're going to get a prompt reply. And then there'll be times where suddenly, you know what, I haven't heard back from them. And so I do a check-in email. Hey, I'm just checking in, want to make sure you're okay. I don't ask for an update on the project, an update on the task. I ask, just want to check in to make sure you're doing okay. Hope everything's all right. You know, things are going well on my end. I just want to make sure the same as yours. And 90% of the time when I had to do that, the person responds, how did you know? I just lost a family member or they had someone, in one case was a person, they just had a bad accident. And so they're just dealing with insurance companies and they're just stressed. But that simple check-in, I mean, even days afterwards, they said to me, you know what, Tavis, I felt really connected to you. And I realized even when I do these talks on leading with empathy, it's because what we're doing is making people feel seen and heard. We're noticing something's off without them having to tell us. There's also times where you know, I'll see an article that has nothing to do with work, but it has to do with an interest that I know this person I've worked with has. I'll say, oh, I just saw this article. It made me think of you. I just wanted to share it. And the thing that they get excited about more is not the article. It's that I thought of them. 
And I'm glad, Jim, that you're noticing that people are starting to see that this is something we need to do more as leaders and more as colleagues, that we do have to pay attention when we see somebody not quite being what we normally see them being to do a check-in and make sure they're doing okay. And also in those moments where just to take a minute and just send out a note thinking of you. And it has such a powerful impact on people. Every now and then, I think we need to be reminded of of these kind of messages. I remember back in the old days, Tom, when you were on stage and you were introducing for the very first time the In Search of Excellence video. And uh, there was a guy who was going to come on screen shortly named Tom Malone. And uh, Tom, to those of us who were working with in the Tom Peters company at the time, he turned to us aside and said, just wait till you see what he does. And the guy came on and he talked about his employees at uh, North American Tool and Die. And he started to cry. And I, I, I can still visualize, see that scene in that film. Yeah. Later on, I got a chance to meet Tom Malone and talk to him and interview him. He ended up being the story in one of our books. That's an old message, mm-hmm. Tanvir. That's what, 40 some years old now? And uh, I think we're just being reminded once again of how, of that important message that Tom and, and Bob in In Search of Excellence told so eloquently and we've been repeating that message over and over again for now over 40 years. There's not a this there's nothing new about this. Yeah, the, the problem with you two guys is you're not normal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, every single word both of you said I agree with. But pre-pandemic, we had only 23% of people were engaged at work. Mm-hmm. And that means that 70, the most bizarre part about that statistic, incidentally, is it is exactly the same in every country in the world. It is amazing. I mean, there is a standard deviation, but it's very, very, very low. Uh, If 23% were engaged, 77% weren't engaged. And that was mainly because bosses didn't notice those looks on their faces and my strong suspicion is that the same thing was true about their spouses and their kids. And, you know, it, and it goes back to the, you know, Jim's narrowing about trust in this conversation. Uh, that's where it comes from. It's in the, it's in the promotion process. It's in the hiring process for, uh, and I think it's, you know, the story you told me here is great, but I, bet that guy is kind of a noticer in general. I mean, your specifics about how he picked up on it. I just, I just don't want to be glib about this. There are a hell, you know, if 23% of people are engaged, and as far as I'm concerned, not meaning in a violent way, 70 77% of bosses ought to be tossed over the side. Hmm. Uh, you know, and, and, uh, People do change. Oh, I mean, I'm I'm just. I mean, for God's sakes, I'm in my 80th year. As I said to somebody, and it's true for both of you guys, I said, if you want to understand, I said, I'm my 80th year. I have two degrees in engineering from a great school, two degrees from business school from a business great business school, and I said, 
But if you want to understand what I've been writing for the last 40 years, you must show me a signed certificate of approval from your teacher from the third grade at age eight. <laughs> you know, there's nothing, nothing, nothing that I've talked about that requires more than a third grade education. In fact, and we don't have the time because I could go off on my business school rant in the Financial Times in an article they asked me to write. It was mainly about McKinsey. I said, we ought to shut down all business schools. And the funny thing about it was, I kind of mean it. <laughs> but, but so let's not make it easy. Uh, I mean, that the, no, it's not, it's, it's not easy. Mm, no, it, it, it isn't. I don't, easy, you didn't say that, but I, it I'm is being, possible. I'm, I'm saying it in a way that, you know, I'm saying it. That's not a, not a critical remark. I just don't know how to deal with that damn 77% whose employees are not engaged. We went way off the beam. Yeah. If you think about it, Tommy, remember in the first year of the pandemic, we, again, had a great term for something we all experienced, which was Zoom fatigue, right? Yep. And why were we all experiencing Zoom fatigue? Because all we did essentially was say, we're going to take what we've been doing in the workplace and just do it digitally, which is have our people come into work and basically go and sit in meeting after meeting after meeting. And then they have to rush back to their desk and try desperately to finish the work that they had thought they were going to do. But then they got dragged into a meeting, which why am I even here? And then we just replicated that. And now people were like, oh, my God, I'm just sitting in meeting after meeting and I'm getting tired of staring at my screen. And, you know, I really want to have time to actually do the work I was meant to do. And so I think what's happened when we finally were forced because of Zoom fatigue, OK, OK, well, we'll have less meetings. And then you're having less engagement. You had to focus more on when you would actually connect with people. How are they doing? And then you start noticing, wow, wait a minute. When I talked to Jim, oh my God, he was so full of energy. He was, you know, full of life. He's really excited. And then when I talked to Tamara, who's more low key, what's going on there? It's a bit more discernible because you're not just sitting in meetings, going over reports and wondering why am I wasting my time here when I could be spending it somewhere else getting the work I need to get done. And so I think that's what's causing now this change where people are having to address it. But I'm also wondering if that's also what's causing people to want to go back to the office, because as you said, Tom, and I completely agree with you, this isn't easy what we're suggesting. It's not easy. It really is a mindset shift. And if you can't basically get better leaders, then you got to tell these leaders, well, now you have to roll up your sleeves and really get to work, because if you thought it was hard before, it's really going to get hard now. Absolutely. Absolutely. New, new set of skills, new approaches new ways of interacting. Uh, and back to my bugbear of a minute or two ago, you took too many finance courses and not enough psychology courses. Uh, you know, it's not where you're, not where you're coming from. Uh, I don't have any magic. I just, I just am still stuck on Jim's point about trust. And I think he's absolutely positively 101% right. But how do we get it? in any way across the board-ish. Uh, I'm running a 175-person operation, which probably means I've got 17 or 18 supervisors. Uh, what do I do tomorrow morning? I mean, then there, of course, is the most important question, who put me in that job and why? Mm. And I bet it ain't because I'm better at noticing people. I used to have uh, my, one of my... 
one of my most influential role leader role models uh, was my first was my first uh, supervisor, Johnny Smith. This was now sixty years ago, and uh, Johnny used to turn to us and say, "If you want to really do a good job." in the work that we're doing, grow big ears. <laughs> and I initially didn't get that, but pretty quickly did. Essentially, he's saying, you got to listen to people. Yeah. And I think when we go back to work, instead of going back to work, let's go back to listen and learn. Let's go back and ask questions. Let's go back and say, so, you know, what did you learn during this pandemic period? That was helpful to you. What did you learn that that uh, you know you 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 found didn't work, and you you want to make sure you don't do it again. You want to pass that lesson on to others. I think we took a few minutes or hours, days, to listen and learn. That's where it starts. Just as simple as that. Well, I I completely agree with you on the listening piece, and. You guys are both better at this than I. Um, can the two of you, when engaged by a sizable company, can you work directly on listening? I can with the people with whom I work most closely, peers and direct reports. I mean, I think I can find a way to ask people out to lunch or sit down with, uh, invite myself to their lunch and just sit down with them if we happen to be in the cafeteria or, or around the corner to the to someplace uh, that we can all sit down together. I think I can, in a meeting, just uh, shut up and listen. And at the end of that meeting, say, you know, I, I really appreciate everyone's contribution. And here's what I learned from what you guys were saying. Help me if I didn't, didn't hear you correctly. Mm. Those are simple acts that we can all do. Well. To, to even go one step further, which I love, I was having a Twitter exchange about this, and uh, some woman who was part of it said, I have a secret. And the secret is, before I go into a meeting, I always take a Sharpie and write on my hand, listen. <laughs> and uh, it's not it's not trivial, you know, if you're a fan of Skinner and behavioral stuff, uh, that's that's not a small thing. It puts your, you know, put your mind in a in a uh, in a different place but you know the the not the problem it's silly to say i i was thinking of research that i saw which again was hard nosed you know measured blah, blah, blah. and and this is what i'm not sure how you overcome this group of whatever they were social psychologists uh watched meetings and at the end of the meeting they went up to Jim, who's the boss, and said, you know, we watched that meeting and so on. We kept accurate re records. Jim, how many times were you interrupted? And how many times did you interrupt people? And you are thoughtful about it. And you say, well, you know, I think I was probably inter interrupted seven or eight times. And I will admit that I interrupted on one occasion that I can remember. And, of course, the guy's off by 180. You know, the numbers are just hard ass, hard nose, statistically significant to the 0.0001 level. It was the flip. 
he'd interrupted seven times and been interrupted once, you know, and, and, but, and, but how do, well, it gets back to my, my thing about selection of people for leadership positions. Well, I could tell you, Tom, it's funny you're bringing this up because in the keynote I gave today about leading with empathy, I pointed out a leadership truth that when it comes to empathy, it's about listening, not for finding what you're going to respond or answer, but listening to understand. Yeah. So just to wrap things up here, I mean, I could talk to you guys for hours, but (laughs) to wrap things up here, looking at all the things we talked about, what do you see going ahead as being the key thing leaders and organizations need to focus on to get the process started of this experimentation that we've been talking about of figuring out where they really need to land. Because again, there's just this great tendency of everyone seems to have these days of wanting to look back. So how do they fight that urge and instead look ahead and do that experimentation to figure out what's going to be the best approach for their organization? I hate to repeat the same thing we were talking about, but I think it just starts with that word, listen have some listening meetings mm. where just everyone listens to everyone. Take some time to gather some data. I mean, you know, that that's what Tom has done so well his entire career. I mean, he just notices and listens and quotes the people he listened to and, and then makes some sense out of all of that, notices some patterns in it. I think we all did the same kind of thing that Tom does and Barry and I do in our research and sit down and talk to people about what's up, what you're doing, what you do best, what, what, what didn't work so well for you. And then try to see if there were patterns there and what's going on. We, we, that's where we would start. Uh, just like any scientist, we're in, in a big experiment. Uh, maybe we have a ho- couple of hypotheses about what'll work and what won't work. But let's test some ideas. Uh, let's go out and gather some data. Let's listen. Let's notice. Let's see what kind of results we get. Uh, well said. We we need we need uh, good good training in social psychology. Internet. Jim and Tom, as I said at the start, this is such a privilege and honor to be able to sit around a virtual table with both of you and discuss this topic. That's a definite passion for all three of us. And I'm just grateful to have this opportunity to not only have the chance to speak to both of you again, but to speak as a group like this. This was such a pleasure and a joy. And I thank you both for it. Back back to you, bro. <laughs> this has a, been a wonderful, wonderful experience. Uh, meeting, seeing you in this context, seeing Jim. I mean, it's I'm you know pretty near tears from all this, to be quite honest with you. Old farts can cry. (laughs) Thank you, Tom. And thanks for the last, uh, what, how many years now? 30? Only 30? I'm serious. Isn't it more than 30, probably? Yeah. Well, we met 40 years ago. We started working together about 32 years ago. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. And we both survived each other, Jim. Hey, you (laughs) you can't do any better than that. Well, it was just a genuine joy. But I want I want to say to Jim one last thing. There were areas where he and I disagreed, and I have come his way in a way that I notice to a very significant degree. So I want to, you know, I want to thank Jim for being my mentor, teacher, 
uh, rolling his eyes at the appropriate <laughs> moments and so on. So I will take this public opportunity, Jim, to, uh, to thank you from the bottom of my heart. Well, Tom, I really, you know, you changed my life. Uh, and it was for the better. Uh, and I have been grateful ever since we first met. And I continue to be so. So I, I just, you're in my heart all the time, Tom. Thank you. Thank you. And as a final note here, I hope both of you have now shown an example that maybe we can pull the other leaders, those 77% leaders, towards this direction so that they can actually inspire the best of those they lead and be the leader their employees need them to be. So again, my thanks to you both. This was an incredible conversation, an incredible opportunity. I appreciate both of you and all the work that both of you do. Well, you uh, you were the leader of the conversation. And so my my hearty congratulations for, you know, keeping a couple of long-winded guys. <laughs> right. No, it was fun. It was, just, it was fun. You know, it was fun. It was just pure, raw, unmitigated fun. Well, I can't think of a better note to end this conversation on. And again, my heartfelt thanks to Jim Kuzis and Tom Peters for joining me in this very special roundtable discussion about some of the challenges leaders are grappling with today and sharing their insights on what leaders need to do. And who knows, I may think about doing another one of these types of episodes. Let me know what you think about it. And on an aside, I have to say the ending of our conversation has got to be one of my favorite moments in the 100 plus episodes we've done so far. I don't think we'll ever get a heartfelt moment like we did with this one. I knew this was going to be a very special conversation with Tom and Jim, and it's just wonderful to see it also being a very personal one for them too. If you'd like to learn more about Tom and Jim's respective work in the leadership space, check out the show notes for this episode on our podcast page at tavernasir.com slash LBC. And if you enjoyed this episode, I'd like to encourage you to subscribe to our podcast. If you go to our podcast page at tavernasir.com slash LBC, you'll find links to subscribe to our podcast on all the major streaming platforms. And if you could, it'd be great if you could rate and review my podcast as well, wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. I'm Tavin Nasir, and you've been listening to this very special episode of Leadership Biz Cafe.